and welcome to the Common Good Podcast, the podcast that showcases the very best of Glasgow Caledonian University and how the institution, its staff and its research benefits people and communities both at home and overseas. My name is Craig Telfer and today we are going to be talking about new research that explores the history of women's golf in Scotland. It's a fantastic topic and I'm delighted to be joined by two excellent guests. The first is Lauren Beatty, a PhD research student. Lauren, it is great to have you on the show. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And the second is the star of the very first episode of the Common Good podcast all the way from the summer of 2019. She's a senior lecturer in history. She's Dr. Fiona Skiller. Fiona, great to have you back with us. Thanks for having me. What a build-up. <laughs> well, it's a big build-up because this is a big topic and one that I'm really enthusiastic to be speaking about. Before we start, though, I think it's perhaps worthwhile looking at how this study started. I know it began with a collaborative studentship between Glasgow Caledonian University and the R. World Golf Museum in St Andrews. So tell us about how this collaboration came up. Yeah, so this came about because I um, had been researching women's golf for a number of years in, in a different, um, different aspects of it. And it started sort of conversations between myself, our colleague Fiona Reid, and the Golf Museum. And we became aware of this collaborative doctoral studentship, which is run by the AHRC. They fund it and organise it. And it's quite a unique scheme in that the students who come on to the programme get to do a PhD, a, a normal academic PhD, where they work with a university. But we partner with a heritage organisation. So they also get the experience of working within that organisation. So when they come out of the studentship, they have a choice between working in two different sectors or, or you know, straddling both of them. So it's actually really exciting to have that opportunity. And so we put a bid in for this studentship through Sporting Heritage, which is an organisation that coordinates the studentship, a group of studentships around Sporting Heritage for the AHRC. And we were lucky enough to get that funding. And uh, we interviewed lots of different people for the post and we got Lauren and we could not be more happy. Um, you know, she's so enthusiastic and so interested in the topic. And it's just been a pleasure to work with her in the last year, 18 months while she's been doing the PhD. Excellent, that sounds brilliant. Lauren, how's your experience been in this studentship? Well, it's been great. Um, obviously, it's been a little bit different because of COVID. So I started in January 2020 and by March I was at home. So I started off in the museum and then by March I was sent home like everyone else. So um, it has been a bit different, but I've, I've, I've loved every minute of it. We've just adapted as we've had to together. So it's been great. Can you give us a wee outline of some of the stuff you've been doing as part of the studentship? Obviously my own research um, and I've started from, from right from scratch. I'm not a golfer myself and I don't come from a golf background. I come from a history background and museum studies background. So I really had to take it right back to the, to the start of golf and do lots of research. So i um, been doing lots of different research um, on the history of golf, the men's game and the women's game. But alongside my research, I've been really lucky that I've been able to do some museum work as well. So it was a big redevelopment project for the RNA World Golf Museum, and I was able to contribute towards some of the writing for the galleries. And also, um, Fiona and I have been involved in a documentary as well, Iron Women, that was on BBC Alba. So that was great. I got to do some of the research for that. So I've actually been really lucky. I've got to do the a lot despite the circumstances so yeah I've been really fortunate. 
actually watched Iron Woman in preparation for doing this podcast and a brilliant documentary. And my favourite thing, though, was a, a picture of yourself, Fiona, as a wee girl holding up a golf club with this big bouffant hairstyle. So, yeah, that is, that is something I, I really enjoyed. But, but Lauren, I know as part of this project, you're collecting a lot of oral testimonies from women who have played the game. You talked about that. Yeah, so that's a, a big part of this project is um, doing oral histories. So I've now done about 20. Um, I've been doing them remotely online um, using Microsoft Teams and uh, H5, Zoom H5 recorder. Um, so it's been an interesting experience because I've never done anything like this before. I've never used this sort of equipment. So it has been quite challenging, but I've absolutely loved it as well, just learning. And, and it's been a great experience. So yeah, so as I said, 20 interviews so far. Uh, to, to start off, I, I did a, a questionnaire, which I um, sent out as broadly as I could through, um, through golf clubs and on social media and things. And that was really to try and capture as wide an audience as I could for this and, and try and get women from all different backgrounds. So I've been interested in speaking to women that have played golf at club level in Scotland during the period 1945 to 1995. My criteria has been women over the age of 40 who have played at club level at some point during that period have been eligible to participate. So that was the, um, the sort of, yeah, the, the starting point. And um, yeah, they've been, they've been going really well. Been getting lots of interesting responses and I've got a few more to do that I'm hoping to do in person. And um, now that things are a bit better, I've got a few older participants that haven't been so keen to do it online. So I'm hoping to go and interview them in person. And I'm really excited for that because I think it'll be a completely different experience. But yeah, it's, it's been great. What sort of stuff have these uh, participants told you about their experiences from playing golf? I've really been interested in, they've been semi-structured, so I have had some questions to ask them, but I've, I've let the interviewee as much as possible just tell me about their experience. So each interview has been different and they've, they've taken sort of different formats, but um, they've been telling me things about, you know, what made them start playing golf. You know, a, a quite common themes have been that the majority have started playing quite young, whether in childhood or sort of teenage years, um, who introduced them to the game, their parent, a grandparent, you know, playing on holiday from a child. And they talk about competitive golf, you know, the sort of competitions they've played in, whether it's been at club level, county level, national level. As I said, you know, I've tried to speak to women that are from all um, abilities as well. So, very low handicap golfers, some um, women that have turned professional as well, and also higher handicap golfers as well to get sort of a mixture of experiences. So they have all been different. One comment that really sticks sticks in my mind is um, one woman that said to me, because I'm interested also in, whilst interested in the, the motivations of women playing golf, I'm also interested in whether they faced any challenges. And whilst the majority have said, you know, oh, my main challenge is the course or, you know, the game itself or, you know, I was ladies captain and that was a challenge. But one woman said to me that her only challenge was men and the attitude that they often have towards women. And that really hit me. And I thought, wow. And so she she started playing um, when she was in, in the mid 70s, actually, she decided she was so appalled when she was, this was when she was, I think, in her, her late teens, mid to late teens. And she was so appalled at the way 
that um, women were treated in golf clubs that she actually wrote to golf clubs and did a questionnaire. Um, and I thought that was really, yeah, amazing actually to do that at that age, you know, to take that initiative to do that. And um, But she unfortunately said that she doesn't think much, things are much better now. Really? And so, yeah. So that hit me. I must say that that's not been something that a lot of women have said, but I think, you know, it really stuck in my my mind when she told me that. And I thought, oh, you know, that's not so great. But yeah, a lot of positive stories as well. I'm thinking, Fiona, when we did a podcast looking at the development of women's football in Scotland, men seem to be a barrier and a, a hindrance in, in getting the game going. Has that been the same for the development in golf in Scotland? Yeah, it's quite interesting, you know, what Lauren is finding is, you know, also what I found. I looked at an earlier period. So Lauren's work kind of develops on from some where I finished at the start of the Second World War. And the women that I spoke to also had a similar narrative that they didn't see men as a problem or that there were particular barriers because of their gender. But I think if you take a step back, if you're not actually in that situation and you look at how women participate in golf, there are very obvious barriers. So, for example, there are often rules and regulations about when women are allowed to play and often those are a lot more restricted, the hours that they're able to play um, and have access to the course, to the clubhouse facilities and so on. Those things are changing and have changed more recently with various Equalities Acts and, and things. But certainly in the period that we're both studying, there are significant barriers. But what is really interesting and what we need to kind of scratch a bit more around this, below the surface of is why the women we're talking to don't see that as an issue. Mm -hmm. And perhaps it's because the women who are playing golf are more conservative so they know that they're, they're going into this game with their eyes open and that's what their expectation is so therefore it's not a problem because it's something they've already kind of you know settled with themselves that they are able to work within that or perhaps it's simply that you know they don't see golf as an area where they're kind of fighting for you know feminism fighting for equality you know again we know that in other sports women have been more vocal about the barriers that they face the inequalities that they face and yet we do also know that in golf there are still those barriers in place in many in many institutions, although, as I say, that is significantly changing. And I think that is what's really interesting about this study and where this study might go in the future as well as helping to underpin some of those new policies and, and, uh, and campaigns and things that are being developed by the RNA and Scottish golf and so forth to try and break down those barriers and to try and get more women and young girls active in golf as well. That's very interesting, Fiona. And you mentioned there that, that Lauren's work is dovetailing with, with your own research into golf. Can you talk a wee bit about the stuff that you're looking at? My research predominantly focuses on the interwar period, so between the First and the Second World Wars. And for women's sport, that was a real growth period. Yeah. That was really when lots of different sports became available to a much wider range of women because we started to have things like municipal and council provision of sports added to which sport in that period was very fashionable. So it was a really trendy thing to do. So lots of women who really had no interest before suddenly started trying different sports and getting involved. And golf was part and parcel of that. And the numbers of women taking part in golf skyrocketed in the interwar period. So my focus was very much about who was playing, where were they playing, who were they playing with? Very similar questions actually to those that Lauren is now pursuing in, in her period as well. And we're kind of hoping that between the two studies, the work that I did on the earlier period and the work that Lauren's now doing, we'll have a better overview of what actually happened in the 20th century in Scotland and women's golf. Who was playing? What barriers were they facing? What made them drop out of the game? You know, was it barriers? Was it barriers within their organisations and their clubs? 
or was it more to do with lifestyle and just the fact that they got married or they had children or they took up full-time employment all of those sorts of things because although obviously other bits of society have changed economics politics everything has changed over the course of the 20th century there are some things that have continued and I think there are lots of interesting findings within my research and hopefully within Lord's as well that will then feed into these policies that can help shape future participation as well so it's not just about focusing on the past it's about bringing the past into the future as well. Let's talk a little about the, the development of women's game I think everyone knows that golf in Scotland was invented by Mary Queen of Scots is, is, is that really the case? No <laughs> No, it's a great story, but unfortunately, um, it's not true. There's no evidence to suggest that that is true. So, no, she didn't play. <laughs> ah, well, there, there you go. There, there's, uh, there's that myth busted. <laughs> but I know that golf in Scotland is about 1867, wasn't it, in St Andrews? It was at the, the Ladies' Putting Society, am I right with that name? They got together, and that's what kicked off a more formal women's golf movement in the country. Yeah, so that was the first women's golf club in the world, was established established in St Andrews, uh, the St Andrews Ladies Golf Club, which later became the St Andrews Ladies Putting Club. So yes, yeah, so that was established by a group of middle-class women that basically got together and started playing on the, the Lynx land and it developed from there, basically. At what point did the game become codified then and more formal structures put in place? I would say that for women, really it became more formalised with the development of the Ladies' Golf Union in um, 1893. And that was really the English ladies that started that, that took that the game forward with that. And that was when it was more sort of nationalised and they set up a championship for members to play, the first women's golf championship. And um, they set up a universal, they were the first to set up a universal handicapping system. And basically, yeah, so, I mean, it was that was crucial, really, to getting the game started for women. Who were some of the big names, then, that helped develop the game? Isette Pearson. So she was the founder of the LGU. And then you've got, for Scotland, you've got Agnes Granger, um, who really started off, she um, set up the, the championship in 1903 and then was um, a founding member of the Scottish Ladies Golfing Association as well, which basically developed from the Ladies Golf Union where when Scottish ladies decided that they needed representation for themselves. When I was watching Iron Women, one of the things that I found remarkable was the barriers that men put in place for women. I think there was one bit, I think it might be yourself, Fiona mentioned the documentary, how there was a there was a line in the club that women weren't allowed to go over. To me, that seems incredibly archaic and I, I, I couldn't quite get my head around why you'd have that degree of segregation and something as genial as golf. Yeah, so I think, well, you know, that example that I gave in the documentary, that was from my childhood. So we're talking the mid-80s that that was in place. And that was simply that in the golf club that my family played at, they had one very large kind of lounge room. And rather than making that a communal space where everyone could socialise, they painted a line in the floor three quarters of the way up so that the larger part of the room was for the men only. And the smaller part was mixed. It was for, for guests and female players. And you weren't allowed to cross that line as a woman, regardless of whether you were a, a female member or whether you were just a visitor, you weren't allowed to cross that line. And I remember as a child, my dad kind of, you know, yanking me back as I was sort of like <laughs> stepping over the line. And I, I do it to wind them up because even as a child, I thought this is absolutely ridiculous that somebody has painted a line on the floor and I'm not allowed to cross it. 
And then subsequently, when I was starting my PhD research, I went to the club and asked if I could see some records for the women's section. And I was told because I was a lady member that under the rules and regulations, I wasn't permitted to see any of those documents. And that was really really interesting. They eventually came back and said that I could see a photocopy. They were trying to be really helpful, that I could see a photocopy of the documents, but I couldn't actually touch the kind of sacred books because I was a woman. So, I mean, that, that was in the early 2000s. So even then, although things had moved forward and they got rid of the painted line and all those things, there was still this kind of really entrenched view about gender and what you could do within the club because of your gender and because of your designation as a particular type of member as well that really restricted what you could do and to be honest that attitude is what fired me on to study women's sport Mm -hmm. because I was aware of this kind of low-level sex discrimination that was happening in my own experience and I just thought what must it be like for those women that were coming through at the turn of the century and into the 1920s who were really breaking down those barriers the first women to do that in this environment what must that have been like that was mind-blowing to me and that was what spurred me on to go and do this research was that kind of initial conversation so that kind of I think crystallizes some of the issues that we're facing and while those things have now changed and there's there are fewer kind of sex segregated spaces within clubhouses and women have been offered equal membership as well which is really important because it opens up the opportunities of when they can play who they can play with all those sorts of things there is still you know there is still an issue around around gender I think within within golf how do we solve that then that's the sixty four thousand dollar <laughs> question I think um you know golf is in Scotland and across the UK is declining the people that are playing it the numbers that are playing it is declining the profile is predominantly that it is older white males that mm-hmm. play golf And so something does need to be done in order to change the image of golf and in order to encourage more women and young people to take up the sport. And, you know, to their credit, the RE and also Scottish golf and their equivalent in the other UK nations are all working very hard on that problem. You know, they know that there's no future unless this is addressed. And they have come up with things like the Women's Charter, which I don't know, Lauren, do you want to say a bit more about the Women's Charter? Yes, I can do. So I think that was 2017 that that came in. Yeah, so basically, yeah, the RNA is doing a lot to promote women in golf and they've set up this charter, which is really to get as many golfing organisations on board as possible across the world, basically to um, encourage women in golf across all levels and get them more involved. It's, it's, it's really important. Yeah, so it's kind of get, get, you know, giving them taster sessions, um, having pop-up sessions in different places to get them to, to try the sport. It's offering more kind of flexible play and those kind of things as well, encouraging families to come about the club and, and those sorts of things. All the things that, you know, kind of might put women off because obviously playing a round of golf is, you know, three or four hours. It's, it's not something that you do quickly. You need a lot of time. And obviously, if you are a full-time you know, working full time, if you're a parent, all of those things are huge demands on your time. And if you're going to an environment where perhaps it's not the most accommodating in terms of childcare and those sorts of things, that's really off-putting. So different clubs are looking at different ways of making, you know, their um, clubhouses more family friendly or having events for children and those sorts of things as well that might encourage whole families to come and actually participate or take out membership. So things are changing, I think, you know, certainly the attitudes are changing, it's much more positive and encouraging. And hopefully, you know, 
if COVID hadn't happened, I think we would probably have started to see the impact of that policy much more clearly than perhaps we are at the moment. But hopefully once things settle down from COVID, because obviously during COVID times, while golf was one of the last sports to actually be closed down because it was one of the few things that the government were actually encouraging people to continue playing in the early days of COVID. Once things get back to normal, hopefully we'll start to see a kind of longer term impact. And this research we're doing can only help to develop future kind of policies towards that as well. I know, Lauren, you said that you had no real interest in golf, but having studied it with part of the university and part of the RNA, has it encouraged you to go and get the clubs out? Not yet. <laughs> Not yet. But uh, no, uh, there's two things that I, I want to do. And then one is go to the driving range. I've never even hit a golf ball apart from a, a crazy golf. But I don't think it's, you know, quite the same. Um, <laughs> but go to the driving range. And I really want to get on the Himalayas as well, which is where the ladies played back in 1867. So that's on the cards definitely soon. I think we were also talking about having some sort of supervision session. One of our supervision sessions in St Andrews, we try to alternate and have supervisions online, some at GCU and some in St Andrews at the museum. So we have joked during COVID that we're going to celebrate the end of COVID with our first face-to-face supervision in St Andrews. We're going to go and have a trip to the Himalayas and all have a little go of, of the kind of putting <laughs> on the Himalayas, which um, is something to look forward to. <laughs> Now that the restrictions are lifting up and we're able to almost go back to work as normal, I'm using inverted commas for as normal there, Lauren, will you get the opportunity to spend more time at the museum? Yeah, um, yeah, I will do. Um, I've actually been offered a really great opportunity. Um, I've, I've received a little bit of extra funding. So from January, actually next year, I'll be working in the museum doing a placement, which um, I'm going to be digitising some of the Ladies Golf Union collection. So that's going to be really, really great because I have missed that. I've missed that element of the, the PhD. So I'm really looking forward to that. Do you think as well then, Fiona, these collaborative studentships, do you think we'll see more of them going forward? It sounds, listening to you both talking, it sounds absolutely fantastic. And it's really given you, Lauren, a, a great opportunity. I know it was disrupted by the pandemic, but a, a really good opportunity to explore this. Do you think we'll see more of these in the future? Yes, I think, you know, they're such a wonderful opportunity. Obviously, they're really difficult to get because everybody is now kind of their eyes are open to the possibilities of these types of studentships. So I hope there will be more made available and that we can get some more here at GCU because they're such a wonderful opportunity, not just for the students, but also for staff, because it strengthened my networks within the heritage sector. And also through the studentship, we all get opportunities to do CDP career development you know classes and lectures and various things so actually it's been a really wonderful experience for me as a supervisor and I know that you know um, Lauren's other supervisor and Hannah the, her supervisor at the museum would all say that you know we've all found that a really positive experience and yeah I would I would love to do another one but only once we've got Lauren finished with this one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's, that leads me on to my, my next question then what are the next steps for this project and what are the next steps actually for both your strands of research? So for me, it's just rounding up the oral histories and getting them all transcribed and then starting on the writing. So the next big step for me is obviously getting this thesis done. So, um, yeah, by the end of this year, I want to have at least one draft, draft chapter completed. So, yeah, getting into the writing now, writing up some of these great findings that I've, I've been through the oral histories so um yeah it's going to be it's going to be busy but looking forward to it and I, I think the other element of it is not just the kind of academic output we're also really focused on the public 
output as well. So Lauren already mentioned we've we've been lucky enough to be part of a documentary that came out, which was underpinned by some of the research from from both our work. But longer term, we're hoping to have some sort of exhibition with the Golf Museum, whether that will be in person or online, depending on how um, COVID pans out. And also hoping that we can um, present findings so Lauren can present her findings to the RNA as well. Because I say it's really important that we don't just kind of keep our findings within mm -hmm. the academy, that we actually get that out there in the public and, and you know, make them aware of this really interesting stories that we've uncovered and narratives that we've uncovered through the research. Well, it sounds like absolutely fantastic research and best of luck to you both with the next steps. Lauren, it's been absolutely fantastic to having the show. Thank you very much for joining me. Well, thanks for having me. It's been great speaking to you today. And same with yourself, Una. Great to have you on the show. And I'll, I'm no doubt you and I will be speaking at some point again in the future about some more of your research. So thank you very much. Oh, thank you. It's always a pleasure. I'd also like to thank everyone who's tuned into this episode. And I hope you'll join us again soon. When we'll be talking to another member of the GCU community and highlighting some of the excellent work going on at the university. In the meantime, make sure you subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. You'll find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all reputable retailers. Until then, I've been Craig Telfer, and this has been The Common Good Podcast. Music